Hello and welcome to Developer's Journey, the podcast shining a light on developers' lives from all over the world. My name is Tim Bourguignon, and today I receive Charity Majors. Charity is an ops engineer and the accidental CEO at Honeycomb.io. Before this, she worked at Parse, Facebook, Lab on operations and developer tools, and she always seems to wind up running the database. Co-author of O'Reilly's Database Reliability Engineering book, she loves free speech, free software, and single malt scotch. Charity, welcome to Dev Journey. Thanks so much for having me. It's really nice to be here. I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled. So uh, let's start with this. How do one become the accidental CEO of a company? That is a great question. Um, and I'll tell you, but I will also note that by the time this goes live, it will be public that I'm not CEO anymore. So I can tell you about that too. Um, so when we started Honeycomb, it was three of us, three engineers. And um, a few months into it, I had to let the person who was going to be CEO go and there was no one else to do it. And I was very unhappy about it. <laughs> I kept having nightmares about how no one would ever hire me again for any engineering role. I would just have to be a PM or something. It was, it was pretty traumatic actually, but it needed to be done and there was nobody else to do it. So I've done it for three, almost three and a half years now. Um, but I'm a big fan of leaning into pain and like pushing through hard things. Uh, I've kind of built my career around that. Right. Um, but this was not a thing that I ever grew to love. You know, there are lots of hard things that I pushed through. I got to the other side. I, I found something that I loved about it and being CEO. It, it never happened for me because when you're a CEO, like your job is never to do the things that are working well. It's always to pay attention to the things that aren't working well. And for startups, you know, usually that means sales and marketing. And there are things in marketing that I figured out how to enjoy, how to love, but I would just dread going to work every day and having to deal with, you know, sales stuff. And it, it was killing my soul. So my co-founder and I are switching places. Um, I'm going to be CTO and she is going to be, she was the chief product officer and she is going to take over as CEO. I think it's actually being announced today. So brand new. How, how did you um, manage to make the decision? Was it a long time in the, in the making? Oh, <laughs> uh, it was, it was three years in the making. I mean, I've never wanted, I've never wanted it. Um, I just didn't think there was any alternative. And so as soon as we found an alternative, it seemed pretty clear. But, you know, it's so weird. Like we, when we started this company, I thought that I was going to get to go heads down and just build things for two years. Right. Cause that's what I was craving. Cause I had been a manager for, for a few years. Now at this point, it's been almost six years since I really did a lot of hands-on work and minus like that three months <laughs> in early 2015 when, when I was doing hands-on work at Honeycomb. Um, but things don't really turn out the way you plan, I guess. <laughs> it never does. Problems of success, right? They're good problems to have. Bad problems to have are when you don't have the option or when when you're not growing and nothing is needed from you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, would you mind telling us about um, Honeycomb just a bit so that the listeners know what, uh, what, what you're doing? 
as you mentioned before, like I come from a very operational DBA type background, um, which to me, like when people say ops, I, I've always thought of ops as just reality. Like ops is like the practice of shipping software to users. Um, and I love that, that point where like beautiful theory of computing meets like this dirty, messy, grubby reality. Like that to me is interesting engineering. Um, and I've kind of made it, my history as an engineer has been, my niche has been that where I like to come in as the first infrastructure hire. You know, when it's a few software engineers, they have a product that's starting to get some traction. And now it's time for them to really make it grow up and make it reliable and, and, and build a team that can, that can support it. So I was doing that at Parse, um, mobile backend, like Heroku for mobile. I was doing that at Parse a few years ago. And around the time that we got acquired by Facebook, which was, you know, a year or two after I was there, around the time we got acquired by Facebook, I think we had 60,000 mobile apps. And I was reaching the horrified conclusion that we had built something that was basically undebuggable by like, some of the best engineers in the world doing all the quote unquote right things. We had built this, this platform where as a mobile app developer, you could build anything. You could write your own queries and upload them. And we just had to make it work. You could write your own JavaScript and upload it. We had to make it work. And so I've got these 60,000 mobile apps and all their shitty code. I'm just trying to make it work. And it was falling over constantly. And I tried everything, like every tool out there. And the the thing that finally helped dig us out of a hole was after we got acquired by Facebook and there's a school that this tool called scuba that it's ugly. It's hostile to users, but it lets you do one thing really well, which is slice and dice in real time on dimensions of arbitrarily high cardinality. And when I say cardinality, I mean, imagine like you have a, you have a group of hundred million users and um, the highest cardinality dimensions will be any unique ID, right? Like social security number request ID. Um, low cardinality dimensions are like gender and lowest of all is like species equals human, right? So all the monitoring tools out there are oriented towards low cardinality dimensions. You'll blow out the key space if you try and aggregate by host name or anything else that has lots of different unique IDs. Um, so that's why like trying to debug a platform with low cardinality stuff, it was like, <laughs> like a few times a day, someone would come to me like, parse is down. I'd be like, no, it's not. Like, behold my wall full of dashboards. They're all green. Everything's fine. Um, but like, that's not reflecting their experience. You know, maybe it's Disney. Maybe they're doing four requests per second and most of them are failing. It's never going to show up in my graphs if I'm doing a hundred thousand requests per second. So we got some data sets into scuba and like the time that it took to debug these problems just dropped like a rock, like from hours or days to seconds or minutes and like repeatedly like it was wasn't even an engineering problem anymore it was a support problem and this made a huge impact on me um when i was leaving facebook uh i suddenly went oh shit i don't know how to engineer anymore without this like it's not just a an emergency tool or a thing that we use when something's broken it's become so embedded into how i it's my eyes and ears. It's my five senses for my software. It's how I know what's actually happening when my code hits production and users are interacting with it. Like it's how I decide what I'm going to build. We rolled out a compression feature the other week where it's like, we didn't just set out to build it. We first added some instrumentation, let it run for a while. So we gathered statistics and we could figure out how much space we would reclaim, how it would be distributed, who was going to be impacted, how much, 
who's going to save money, who's going to pay more, you know, and then we built it. And as we're building it, as we're rolling it out, you know, we're just keeping an eye on it and making sure that what we shipped is what we think we shipped and it's behaving as we expected it to. Like the idea of not having that is just, it's like the idea of going back to driving without your glasses, right? If you're as blind as I am. Um, so my co-founder, Christina and I decided to build it because at the time we were thinking this was just a platform problem because platforms all have this, this property where like if you're building mobile app, that app is everything to you. It's your world, right? But it's one of 60,000 or a million to me. Um, and that mismatch is what makes so many people unhappy with their platform experiences. Um, so like the way that, that like this tool is so transformative is that you can first break down by that one in a million user IDs and then break down by endpoint, compute latency percentiles, break down by query, break, you know, break down by any combination of anything that you might want. Um, and, and we knew that platforms had this issue, but it was only over the course of the first year or two that I slowly started to realize that this, this is an everyone problem. This is a function of pure complexity. The, the number of possible outcomes or things that can go wrong or root causes as that goes up, like we just can't cognitively deal with it anymore. We can't fit the entire system into our head and reason about it anymore. It has to be in a tool that we can all interact with, um, that's up to date, that's not relying on the out of date cache in my head. And it needs to have this interactive properties where you can just ask any question without having to ship new code to ask that question, right? Because that's the holy grail of observability. I will now pause for breath. That was a very long answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm trying to piece that, uh, completely together. Um, that's really not my domain, but, um, I think I understood pretty much. Um, if you write software, you need to understand what's happening, right? When your users are interacting with it. And that, that right there is what Honeycomb does. It lets you watch your software and debug it as it's running, as users are using it. That's fascinating. Um, is this for a specific platform or a specific, um, kind of implementation? Uh, no, I mean, any like, we just accept, uh, structured data at, at the ingestion point. Now, obviously, um, you know, getting the structured data to us and the formatting and everything, we have, um, <clears throat> new relic style, uh, libraries that you can install, um, in your code. That's how we prefer, um, people use it. But if you have a log that you can structure, that works too. Like, we don't care. Um, just get the data in and then you can start looking at it. <laughs> Fantastic. Cool. Uh, I'll, have a, I'll have a look at it. There's a, there's, there's a sandbox where you can play with it. Mm -hmm. I'll uh, link that to the show notes as well. Um, but I, I wanted to uh, rewind a bit. Um, how did you come up in the tech world in the first place? Um, let's see. Well, I went to school for classical piano performance. Um, and... Mm -hmm. When I got to school, I realized that all of the music majors were broke. And I grew up poor. I didn't want to be broke. I didn't want to be poor as an adult. And uh, I had a crush on a boy who was a computer science student. And I spent some time in the computer science lab. And I really loved the command line. Like I was, I never really liked the point and clicky interfaces, but I really loved like writing on the command line, using commands and shell scripting. And um, so I. I became the sysadmin for the math stat department and then for the CS department and then the entire university. And then I got a job um, after four years of schooling, 
where I was paying more and more attention to my work and less and less attention to my schooling, <laughs> I just dropped out and came to San Francisco and I've been here ever since. Okay. So you just jumped in like this as a, as a dropping your major and going to tech. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. Yep. That's cool, actually. And you didn't have really um, um, a background in STEMs before? No. No, I was homeschooled. Yeah. Didn't have a guest uh, that had done that before. Cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I grew up cool. in a very remote, isolated, separatist farm in Idaho. Um, very religious. Um, and none of us went to school or saw doctors or immunized or any of the normal modern things. Um, but I left home when I was 15 and went to college basically to get away. Mm -hmm. um, from what you describe in, in three and a half sentences, so that might be wrong what I'm going to say, but, uh, but I'll say it anyway to trigger you. Um, it sounds like you, um, you did very much of, um, of, uh, self, uh, teaching. Is this oh, yeah. the way you learn? Um, yeah, I, I guess so. I definitely learn by doing, not by listening. Um, and by reading, I, I can't even really sit through conference talks because I don't process and, and, and learn new information that way. Um, and I'm not scared of, you know, not knowing something, something that I've always found kind of odd is, is how people seem to wait for permission or wait for schooling or wait, wait for a class or something like you can learn almost anything if you, if you put your mind to it and if you want to. Mm -hmm. And how do you go about, um, learning? something what, what is your strategy um just do it you know i i just i look for some i i am extremely motivated by what needs to be done what must be done if something is necessary and it must be done i will find a way to do it i'm not motivated by you know tinkering or fun projects or or like you know proof of concepts or you know i i'm very much motivated by If it's business critical, if it must be done, if it is needed, um, then I will find a way one way or another. And I enjoy it. I really enjoy being dropped into the deep end and just, you know, sink or swim, figure it out. If, like the weight of the world rests on your shoulders. Like if you don't figure it out, no one will and the company will go out of business. Like I really enjoy that level of pressure. <laughs> that is awesome. That's really the startup way, isn't it? Yeah. That's cool. But how, how do you, um, how do you, um, keep an eye on what's being developed in the industry and, and learn what's, um, what's not on your plate from a, from a business perspective, but could be interesting for the future. Well, I mean, I, I read Twitter, um, and, uh, the tech press and, and I like to go out drinking with friends whose opinion I respect. And, and I hear a lot from them. Like, I, I love to hear what other people are excited about. There's nothing more fun than talking to somebody who's genuinely excited about what they do. That is true. How about you? That is true. I, I love to do the same, but I'm very, um, very social person. So I tend mm. to have, um, I can tell. mentors and mentees. Yeah. Yes, ab absolutely. I'm a, I'm, I'm a mentor myself. I have two mentors, uh, as well. And I really like to, um, what does mentorship mean? Mentorship for me is, um, is spending time, um, to focus on, another person mm -hmm. so is forgetting about yourself and just trying mm -hmm. to help with really this person in mind um mm -hmm. there's a small difference between mentorship and coaching um mm -hmm. being that, that i think mentorship is less restrictive 
Um, mm-hmm. uh, you really are helping with whatever you have. Um, you can be a teacher, you can be a coach, you can be um, a parent, you can be a guardian, you can be anything, as long as you're um, uh, genuinely trying to help. Yeah. That's that's my definition. Interesting. And, I, I've always been had a little bit of an aversion to mentorship. Um, I, I don't like hierarchy. I don't like relationships with implied or, or overt hierarchy. They, they tend to um, set me off in unhelpful ways. I really like peers though. And I find that I have learned the most things in my career from, especially when I became a manager, like the peer relationships that I had with people who were more experienced managers than me. Like I learned so much just from hearing their stories of, of, you know, times when they have had problems, like the one that I'm in front of, right. Hearing someone else's story is like getting to borrow their experiences. But I, but I always re- think of them as like peer relationships because I really like the giving as well as taking and taking as well as giving. Um, Cause that, that just works better for me if I formulate it that way mentally, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally makes sense. Um, I've, I've uh, had the same experience actually. Um, all my um, relationships with my mentors. Um, well, uh, I have I have to to correct that. So one one of my mentors is actually a co-mentor. So depending on the topic we are discussing, um, one will be um, the more knowledgeable, and the other mm-hmm. one will be uh, the less knowledgeable. And this will um, um, flip around during the two-hour discussion mm-hmm. that we'll have uh, many times. And so there's mm-hmm. really um, um, discussion um, uh, like a, like a sparring partner, I would say, mm-hmm. more than a, than a mentor. Um, yeah. That said. Um, I've often seen that um, starting a mentoring relationship with um, with junior developers um, yeah. takes a bit of your hierarchy just to kickstart the process. Uh, so yeah, I had to to be the mentor to really endorse this this um, stance to be the mentor mm-hmm. for a while um, in yeah. order to um, to show him because um, there were two uh, at least uh, um, the two mentees I have in mind. Um, to male developers, uh, to show them that, um, that there is something to it. And after a while, now we have a relationship that is, um, kind of becoming at, uh, at uh, the same height and going back and forth as well, but it took a while yeah. to be initiated. Yeah. Interesting. That's cool. Mm-hmm. So, but this is really a part of, um, of my, my learning as well. Um, mm-hmm. getting to learn through somebody else and see what they are excited about and how they learn and how they go about doing their stuff. And this is, um, this is very important. And, and you're right. Yeah. This is exactly what I'm doing through this, uh, this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. I also find that teaching other people or sharing my stories with other people helps them really stick for me. Like I'll often forget stories or anecdotes. They'll drift out of my mind if I don't tell them or share them. But if I repeat them a couple of times, then I, then I hold on to them better over time. That is true. That is true. Um, do you share a lot of stories or do you, do you present a lot of talks? I do give a lot of talks, which is, um, it's, I, I used to be pathologically afraid of public speaking. Um, so I kind of forced my brute force, my way through it. I, I enjoy it now. Um, but I probably give 20 or 30 talks a year. Um, mm-hmm. and that, that was really helpful for me. Like, I don't think I could have started a company if I hadn't learned to do public speaking. Um, I used to be one of those people who could only, I could write, but I couldn't t- 
talk. I couldn't really think while I talked. So I couldn't change my mind or really like have a discussion. I would have to go away. I would have to present my opinion. And, and, and then if I was countered, then I'd have to go away and I could only think when I was alone. You know, I'm very much an introvert. Um, and over the past five to seven years, I've really pushed myself to <laughs> tolerate people better <laughs> for longer stretches of time. And, and it's been good for me. Like, cause public, public speaking is, you know, when you're, when you're in any position of leadership or, or authority, people are looking at you a lot and they're listening to you a lot. And, Having the ability to read the room and react demonstrates that you're present and it makes people trust you. And it's just a much more efficient and effective way of, of existing in the team, if that makes sense. Like when, when you're an introvert and you can't, you know, talk out loud, it holds you back, I think. Or it did me. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. I'm, I'm coaching a, a client right now and most of the teams, um, or most of the team members are, um, absolutely not, um, um, used to, uh, public speaking. And mm. you can see it. The, all the meetings lack energy, all the, um, the, the, the information sharing is kind of, uh, of, uh, uh, boredom pure and, you see it reflected in everything. It's, it's, it's really, um, holding yeah. them back. And so, um, being able to run a meeting and just like run the room is a very underrated skill set. People don't talk about it much, but it's incredibly important for everyone. It is. It is. Is this the reason why you started? Um, no, I started just because I felt, felt personally offended by how bad I was. <laughs> I just don't like to fail at <laughs> things. <laughs> okay how, how did you realize this uh because i i was asked to give like a customer testimonial at aws reinvent like six years ago and i bombed and i just hated how badly i did and so i decided to get better at it <laughs> yeah so i went in so for two years i gave talks everywhere that you know i submitted to every conference that i could i gave a talk anywhere that would have me i did like 17 that first year and, uh, and I got a prescription for propranolol, which is like a, it's a medication that, um, lowers your, it, it blocks the, the brain's, um, adrenaline receptors. So you don't get the physical manifestations of terror. You don't, you don't get this clammy palms and the shaking. You're still scared, but you aren't physically just like impacted. So I, I got that and I would take it before talks and I, I, I just spent, it was basically a second job for, for two years. And after about a year and a half, I remember the first time I was traveling to give a talk at a conference and I forgot to pack my prescription. And I was like, ah, I must be better now. I guess I don't need the drugs anymore. <laughs> but it was rough. <laughs> well, co congratulations. But that's, that's consistent to, um, to your uh, way of learning, just um, getting yeah, in there really and is. just making the best out of it. Yep, yep. Doesn't always go great, but eventually it works out. Yeah, we all have our stories of uh, of war stories of uh, talks that completely bombed. Um, yeah, for sure. <laughs> that's that's part of the job. Okay, um, is the community important for you? Oh yeah, very. Um, yeah, um, I, I run a local underground ops and systems engineering group here locally. Um, and it's, it's 
we just need to bond over technology sometimes, you know? But the thing is that like, I'm a big fan of, of, of ones that aren't publicly posted because it needs to be a safe space. You know, you have to be okay telling your worst stories of outages and, you know, as managers, you know, you need, you need to create a space where you can speak openly, but privately about people on your team in order to share, you know, in order to share wisdom and, and learn from each other. And, and I, and I really, I, I work pretty hard to create a couple. I also run a small leadership group that meets every month where, where it's closed invite. Um, but you know, it's, it's for this sort of skills, skill sharing, I guess I would call it. I, yeah, these, these groups are always, you know, there will be times in your life where, where you will need them desperately and you will wish that you have them if you don't. And so I've learned to always have some of them in my life. That's very interesting. I, I was just thinking that I've never heard this before and why you were talking. So, but no, that's not true. That's what I'm getting at with my mentoring. So mm -hmm. I don't know any of those, of those, uh, user groups or those, uh, um, Uh, an anonymous ops group, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. but that's true. I have um, a very deep relationship with my mentors and my mentees, and there's mm -hmm. a safe place there to uh, to discuss about our stuff. And that's awesome. What I started to realize was that it doesn't scale. You know, I wanted to. There are so many people who I looked at them and I'm like, ah, oh, I want you to have the community that I have. I want you to have these relationships that I have. I want to help give you a leg up. You know, some of them are earlier in their careers, and and I couldn't. Like these one, one on one meetings just don't scale, you know, at some point, like, you know, I realized that I had to scale myself. Um, and that's when I created the groups so that, you know, you kind of create a self sustaining community of people who can all learn from each other. I wrote a blog post about this. Oh, you did? I will link that to the show notes. Yeah. 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 About like how to build your own peer mentorship group. Uh, there's a GitHub repo and everything. And um, do you want to give us um, the very uh, the pitch, the elevator pitch for that? Yeah, sure. Um, it's it's basically just kind of what we've been talking about, which is that um, there's only one there's only one way that I know to to learn leadership skills, and that's by doing it or hearing stories of other people doing it. Because um, like the, when you're hearing stories, your your brain actually fires off the same mirror neurons as if you're actually experiencing it yourself. And um, we can't all learn everything from scratch. <laughs> God, I hope not. Right. So it helps to get a, to hear some of the experiences from people who have been through these things before. So like one of the things that we do is um, at the beginning of the, we, we meet for 90 minutes once a month on Sunday in someone's home. And the first thing that we do is we um, come with some homework. Uh, where we've sat down alone beforehand and we filled out a piece of paper that this has written on the left. It says um, me, my family and my work. And on the top, it says good and bad. And so this makes six little squares, right? And you fill out what is good and bad for me personally this week, for my family this week and for work this week. And then you just, it's kind of a way of checking in with yourself and taking stock of how am I actually doing? <laughs> and, and then you go, we go around with the group and each of us shares one or two things that really jumps out at us about where our energy really is this week. Um, and then we go around again and just talk about, you know, sometimes we'll have a theme for the week, like, you know, 
sometimes it'll, it'll be pretty practical, like engineering ladders or, you know, promotions and hiring. Sometimes it'll be much more personal. Um, like, you know, if there's a big thing that's in my life that, you know, I talked about last month and we'll talk about it again, ask questions. And it's great because, you know, once you've talked through your problem, which is sometimes you talk through it in a supportive environment and you're like, ah, now it makes more sense. Now I can see it. And sometimes you're just as stuck, right? And so then you've got half a dozen people there who care about you, who know enough about you and your history and your team to offer really sage, well-considered, personalized advice or thoughts or you know, even to hold you accountable, you know, sometimes we'll have buddies and we'll be like, okay, we're going to check in on each other over the next couple of weeks just to make sure that we're sticking to the thing that we said we were going to do or something like that. It's, it's, it's really nice. It's a really nice source of support. It is. It reminds me of the uh, concept of a mastermind. Have you heard about that? Hmm, that's that. It's, it's very similar. Um, it's more oriented on the, um, on the shared accountability. Um, but mm -hmm. it's, uh, other than this, it's really, it's really the same. It's sharing what you've been doing, sharing what you want to do in the, in the next uh, week or in the next cycle and have, um, the other participants basically, um, help you, um, build on it. And then mm -hmm. they will, um, remember what they, what you talked about in the next uh, meeting and then ask mm -hmm. about it. And so you kind of have this, uh, this built in accountability, um, to always, um, stay on the ball or at least ask yourself why you didn't do things and, um, and do this mm -hmm. with the group. That's a great, that's neat. I'm gonna have to look that up. Yeah. I'll, I can send you the link afterwards if you want. That's, cool. uh, that's very neat. Yeah. That's very neat. Yeah. You, um, you said you have been a manager before. So I think that was mm -hmm. when, uh, when Pars was, uh, bought by, uh, Facebook, was it? I've gone back and forth a couple of times. Mm -hmm. Um, how do you, do you handle this going back and forth between a tech role and, and a manager role, um, in your life? Yeah. So I've actually written a couple of blog posts about this too. Um, I really strongly advocate for seeing like, seeing it like a pendulum. I think the best technical leaders do go back and forth. Um, I don't think that you should see management as a promotion. I don't think you should see being an IC as a demotion. I think that you should see it as a parallel, a parallel track, but it's like, it's like a different career, right? Um, I think that it takes about two years to put down your engineering skills and learn the basics of management and you should commit to that much the first time. But then like, you know, as a senior technical leader, you need to have the same skills of, you know, breaking down a project into, you know, smaller pieces into, you know, farming out stuff. You know, if you have six engineers and this big amount of work that needs to be done, how do you, you know, give everyone work that challenges them, but doesn't overwhelm them? How do you, you know, step in at the right moments to, to help unstick a project without, you know, um, without babysitting or, or looking over people's shoulder and hovering, you know, how do you make a team succeed? Like these are the same skills, like tech leads, just their primary responsibility is to the, to the code and the technical product and managers tech primary responsibility should be to the people's and the people in their career and their, and their well flourishing. But like, You can't have a very effective senior engineer who doesn't have these skills. I think everyone should spend some time in management. It gives you so much more empathy for 
you know, that whole side of the house. It, it helps you understand much more viscerally how your actions are connected to the business impact. It helps you, you know, it, it's, it just helps you to walk a mile in those shoes and, and, and see what it's like. Um, that said, um, I don't think you can be a good technical leader if you just stay a manager for too long because your technical skills, they atrophy, you know, they rot they decay and you will lose that credibility that you have when you're a deeply technical person managing or leading other technical people, unless you periodically like go back to the well and refresh your skills and get up to date again. Um, so I think that going back and forth is a great career goal in and of itself that more companies should support uh, as an actual good instead of like discouraging people from, from making the transition or making it seem like there's some, you know, um, greater authority and weight that, that should accrue to managers. Because I don't think that that leads to a healthy organization. Amen to that. (laughs) Amen to that. There's a, there's a great example I like, um, which is the, the very beginning of the agile manifesto. Um, there are those Mm -hmm. four, those four values, but there is a sentence just before that says, um, through, um, producing software and helping, uh, doing it and helping our uh, customers do it. We have come mm-hmm. to value, blah, blah, blah. And I think we always forget, uh, the doing it and not just helping yeah. others do it. Yes. And this, Great. this is what I, what, what's, what I understand from what you're saying. This is very true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and as a manager, you probably had to hire people. Yes. Um, what are some kind of, of, um, mindsets? that you are after when you hire someone? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, first of all, I really, there's a lot of interviews out there that seem like they're, they're just trying to get people to trip up or trying to make them fail. And I think that that's really backwards. Like I'm not hiring people for their lack of weaknesses. I'm hiring them for their strengths, right? I want to know what they think they're good at. And then I want to see them do their best work. I don't want to, make them feel scared or nervous. I want to ease their fears. And so I will often actually ask candidates, what can we do to give you a chance to show us you at your best, right? Um, If you've been through this process and you don't feel like you've had an opportunity to show what you do best or your best work, like what can we do to support you so that you can show that to us, right? Um, Because then, you know, you can decide if you want well, that and I, I always want to make sure that they understand that they are interviewing us as much as we are interviewing them, right? It should be equal. There should be parity here. There's this, um, there's this power structure that is, that grows out of like a, a one person who's like applying to work at a place and being screened to see if they're good enough. Like that's not healthy. Like you should be evaluating us just as much as we're evaluating you. Cause there, there are so many amazing engineers or people um, who are very talented, very well skilled, who are just not the right person for this role at this time. And, you know, I, I want, I want the people who we don't end up working with to walk away with their head held high knowing that, you know, it just wasn't a good fit. It doesn't mean that we think less of them. Um, and we would possibly love to work with them in the future. I don't know. I, I think that I'm always looking for people who, who have that sense of dignity, who, who, who believe in, in themselves and, you know, aren't just, you know, they want to be a co-stakeholder, right? They want, at a company like Honeycomb, we want people who come with an ownership sort of, mindset they own their code they they take pride in its quality 
they, they really believe in the product and, um, and, and, and yeah, I, I guess that's what I'm looking for is people who have the right skill sets, obviously, but, but who want to help co-create a culture and a movement as well as, um, as well as write software because, um, we have a, we, we want to change the world. <laughs> then I think we should leave it to there. You want to change the world. That's great. That's, That's a very, yeah. uh, very uh, fine answer. Thank you very much. Yeah. If, if the listeners wanted to, uh, to get a catch on you and continue the discussion, where would be the, um, the best way uh, or the best place to, uh, to reach? Twitter. My name is Mipsy Tipsy. And I also have a blog, which is charity.wtf. Mm -hmm. I'll add that to the show notes. Um, do you have anything coming up in the next month? Something you want to um, to plug in? Um, let's see. June. Uh, well, Velocity is coming up around then. And uh, oh, we're actually going to be doing a, uh, a meetup around the engineer manager pendulum in San Jose during Velocity. So anyone is welcome to register. The link's on my Twitter. Um, mm -hmm. And if you're interested in Honeycomb, um, check it out. I'm sure people will do that. Fantastic. Um, Charity, thank you very much. This has been a blast. Yes, thank you. And this has been another episode of Developer's Journey. We'll see each other next week. Bye-bye. Dear listener, if you haven't subscribed yet, You can find this podcast on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, Spotify, and much more. Head over to www.devjourney.info to read the show notes, find all the links mentioned during the episode, and of course, links to the podcast on all those platforms. Don't miss the next Developer's Journey story by subscribing to the podcast with the app of your choice right now. And if you like what we do, please rate the podcast, write a comment on those platforms, and promote the podcast on social media. This really helps fellow developers discover the podcast and those fantastic journeys. Thank you.